Have you guys noticed that you can't go anywhere without seeing designer this or designer that, even designer furniture? On my social feeds and celebrity homes, it's everywhere. Have you seen how expensive these are? Well, if you want the sofa or recliner or bed that broke the internet, you don't have to go broke to get it. Because Designer Looks Furniture has all the same styles and trends, but without the designer prices. Oh, and they're well-made, too. It's the whole package. Check them out. Designer Looks at Value City Furniture or designerlooks.com. Hear that? That's the sound of a patient whose health data is protected from a cyber attack. And that... That's the sound of a financial system that's digitally secured from bad actors. Right now, there's an invisible war being fought on a digital battlefield that impacts what we do every day. That's why at Paraton, we do the can't be done to help protect the vital systems we rely on. Because if we don't, the alternative is unimaginable. Paraton. How did we become Central Ohio's most trusted team of orthopedic experts? We focus on what matters most, our patients. At Orthopedic One, we know we're only at our best when we're helping you get better. And every day, your commitment to overcoming pain and injury inspires and moves us. That's why we bring our best every day to earn your trust. Find a physician near you at orthopedicone.com. From coast to coast, border to border, and around the world, you're going online with Bill Alexander. Laugh and learn while you listen to a brilliant display of radio. Online. Online. With Bill Alexander. Bill Alexander. Hi, everyone. Yours truly, William Eric Alexander. All my friends call me Bill, and you're online with Bill Alexander here on WMCK.FM, McKeesport, 107.5 FM, WLDJ, Newcastle, Mixtape Radio International at MTRI.co.uk, Awakens.eu, SteelFM.org, and we're also on W. WSX Radio 99.1 Rehoboth, Delaware, RadioRehoboth.com, Orca Radio at Owensburg, Kentucky, Parkway 106, Pittsburgh, and streaming live online at italknet.com. So we are pretty much everywhere and anywhere. If you're looking for us, you can find us pretty much every day of the week except Wednesday and Thursday, and I'm working on that. <laughs> I have presence somewhere in the world on Every day of the week, Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, no, Monday, Tuesday, Friday, Sunday. So I'm working on Wednesday, Thursday, and Saturday. So if you're a radio station out there or an internet station that would like to have me any of those days, you're more than welcome to do it. But anyhow, we have a guest this evening. But before I go to that, I have to give a big shout out to Anna Vicino, who was on the program last week. Anna, we got your cookbook. Eat Happy Too, and she is on the front cover holding that ladle so authoritarian that just makes me want to make food. But a big thank you to Anna for sending that to me this week. And she also sent me an autograph. It said, William Eric Alexander, you are my favorite. Favorite what? I have no idea, but we'll end up finding that out next time we have her on the program. But that's enough about last week. Let's talk about this week's show. On the show tonight, I have an actor, singer, voiceover artist, a native Londoner with a soul of a New Yorker, and someone who stood me up in June, (laughs) who was supposed to be on the program, but I'll give her an excuse this time. She was moving. At least that's what she told me, and she forgot all about being on the program uh, when it was originally scheduled. So, Anna, how are you doing this evening? I'm doing well, thank you, except I feel terrible about last time. I feel awful. Well, don't... don't, I really was moving. I know, I believe you. Don't feel bad. Um, (laughs) But I just wanted to throw that out there. So how are you doing? I'm doing all right, thank you. Yeah, you know, all things considered, doing okay. How are you doing? Um, Other than going a little bit stir-crazy... Uh, pretty much doing fine. Life's uh, somewhat getting back to normal, but uh, not where normal should be. But maybe this is the new normal. So, um, Anna, give my audience a little background who they were, because they may have missed you the last time you were on, which was hard to believe, going all the way back before this whole pandemic started last uh, last February, early March. Right. It was a different world. Yes, totally different then. world. Um. 
so a little bit about me. I'm a London-born actor, singer, filmmaker, voiceover artist. I've been in New York almost 13 years now, which I'm very proud of, coming to you from Brooklyn tonight. Um, and, yeah, I feel like a very proud New Yorker, even though I sound super foreign. Um, I don't know what else you want to know. Well, the the whole idea, and the reason I wanted you back on, because I've talked to other people that we talked to before the pandemic started, and about how life has changed, and you being in the entertainment industry, especially in New York City, how has your outlook on things have changed since this whole thing happened? Oh, massively. I mean, ironically, at the beginning of the year, I like setting goals. And I like on New Year's Eve, I was setting what I wanted my career to look like in 2020. And for me, it was the year of live theater, right? which did not go as planned. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a huge shift for everyone. The entertainment industry had to shift very quickly, as did most people. Um, and I found myself in a, in, a, in a random moment deciding to order some home recording equipment in case voiceover auditions kept coming um which they did okay and in all of the craziness of the pandemic i ended up um booking some voiceover work so for me it took a completely different direction than i was aiming for this year although i, I got lucky with booking work but watching the industry that kind of fuels what i know of this city this city has a million different you know worlds within it but but seeing how the pandemic hit, you know, just in terms of livelihood and heart, the, the core of the people that I know was devastating. Everyone's kind of questioning how, or they started by questioning how they could keep creating and also trying to just figure out how to survive day to day on a human level, you know, just like how to figure out how to be a person again. I think a lot of people were hit very hard in terms of mental health and productivity and ability to function in normal ways you know um and then some people have been amazingly quick at continuing to create i don't that wasn't how i happened to um react to the pandemic but i know lots of people have still been able to come up with new creative ways to express themselves and tell stories and and create community in some really phenomenal ways so last week I had an individual on the uh, program um, whose name is also Anna, and she is a comedian who started out in New York, and she's in Los Angeles. She's done TV. She's done um, voiceover work and everything like that, and she said that she had to find something to keep her busy. Now, voiceover work for her, which she is the voice of NBC for their reality programs, because there's oh, no cool. TV going on or no live or new stuff happening, it all dried up. So she wasn't able to do that. She's So she's focusing now on writing cookbooks and doing her own videos. Now, with this happening to you, I mean, you, I know you mentioned uh, that you were doing some voiceover work, but you're not acting right now. You're not really able to sing publicly. Where is most of your time being focused at? Honestly, I just spent a lot of time walking around. That okay. sounds insane. Um, but, you know, I'm the, I just found myself wanting to be out with people in a way that was possible and to keep moving. I'm not okay. very good at staying still. Okay. <laughs> um, so I found myself like walking 10, 12, 15 miles a day. Wow. Just Yeah. Just around Brooklyn, seeing people, seeing how the city had changed, observing different kind of vibes in different neighborhoods and how different people were reacting and just, you know, trying to, trying not to just sit still and figure out, you know, the thing that, that strikes me is I, as not knowing how the world is going to look. Yes. Like I don't, we, not knowing what the other side is. And so for me, keeping moving and seeing what it's like right now kind of stop that being at the forefront of my mind. Because I actually did the opposite of what you did, and I'm trying to get out of that oh, uh, yeah? mindset because I actually reverted within because I couldn't go anywhere. I couldn't do anything. And I have, again, I have my own home studio and everything else, so I was doing as much as I could there. 
But I realized the more I was in the studio, the more I isolated myself from everybody else because that was my safe place. So I, I was, I was going in that other direction and I realized what a, what a uh, detriment it was to my mental health and trying to get out there and trying to talk to people. But again, you're afraid of, you're afraid of how much interaction you can possibly do. And where I'm located at our, our, um, our officials have been sending messages back and forth. And then we're hearing about schools reopening, about sports and all this other stuff. And it's like, wait a minute, I've been on this planet for a long time. This is something I've never experienced before. So it's very difficult for me to understand this. Now with you, you came from another place from London to New York. Now, have you talked to your family members about what's going on over there? Yeah, I talked to them a lot. That was actually one of the positives of this pandemic, if we're looking for positives, is, you know, really better quality communication and more kind of communicating more often with with people who are important to me. Okay. Um, and so we talked about it a lot, and it's interesting to see how different countries handle it. Um, and it's, and, you know, for me, it's also interesting to see how it differs so much state to state here uh, with the guidelines and, and how different governors react and how different mayors react. But, um, yeah, it, there was, it, was, it was weird to see the difference and kind of brought up some uh, disagreements between family members and I. <laughs> and, yeah, you know, we, we, like in New York, we were wearing masks right. far earlier than they were in London. Really? And oh, far earlier, even though they were ahead of us in terms of numbers at the beginning. Okay. And until, until the government there said it, I had certain family members who didn't see the point of them and then suddenly they became pretty you know it's just hard because not we're all it's the blind leading the blind no one knows none of us know what's happening right and so it was interesting to see how it how all of us had to learn how to adapt and and figure out kind of collectively but at different speeds how to try and be the most responsible we could and and you know it's strange being so far away from them. So with with this with this happening now, you, you brought up about the mask wearing. Where you're at in New York, you said you're in Brooklyn, right? Yeah. Percentage wise, how many people are actually wearing masks? Oh, I would say it depends. It depends. There are certain variables, right? Okay. So people who have masks on them at all times, not yeah. necessarily on their faces, but on them, I would say we're in the high 90%. Okay. People who are wearing them for interactions with, I would still, I mean, it's a huge, it's the majority, the vast majority. You know, in the park, people take them off. Um, if people are outside eating, they take them off. Right. But for example, I've worked in, you know, I've covered in a friend's store for a few days. No one's allowed inside the store unless they're wearing a mask. Like it, there are some very people are taking it pretty seriously um, in Brooklyn overall, and in in New York generally. I think in the city, because I know, and and I've been a couple places since this whole has happened. I've been down south in North Carolina. I've also been in West Virginia recently, um, and I've noticed depending on the location and also which way the state voted in the 2016 election depends on who's wearing masks and who aren't, which I find is very interesting because to me, I'm considering mask shaming because people feel that, that no one has the right to tell them what to do. And I find that very odd in a society where we're supposed to be working together. For goodness sake, if you're driving in a vehicle, you're told you have to wear a seatbelt. If you go into right, a store... If you're going into the store, right. you have to wear a shirt and pants because they're or accepted groups. Right. Maybe a place where you don't have to wear pants. Because <laughs> like, trust me, if I could, I would. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> Understandably. Pants are very annoying. But, you know, it, that's the thing that I find really interesting, this idea of like, well, what about my, my freedom to right. choose? And this is not against freedom itself, but we do things that are legal requirements all the time without thinking. Exactly. It's just a new one. And for some so reason, there's res belt, resistance know. to this one. Now, 
when they did, did they do a mandate in London to wear masks? I think at the moment it's in stores and on the tube. It, it may have expanded further than that. Okay. Now. So do you think they're having the same resistance that we're having here in the United States? I, I would be surprised because I don't think that uh, the, con- I mean, this is a, maybe a controversial statement, that the concept of freedom is uh, spoken about so highly in the UK, but I also think that we may be less restricted in some ways in the UK. Okay. And I think generally in the UK people, am I going to say they're rule followers? I don't know if that's, if that's appropriate or, or accurate the while since I've been there. But um, I don't think it's the same. I don't, I would be surprised if there was the same resistance. Because um, I've mentioned this in the past, that I find it interesting that in the United States, there's so much resistance to it. But if if you look at certain parts of Europe and you look at Asia, they're more willing to wear the mask. And we've seen people in the Asian countries, whenever they even have the flu, they have a mask on because they don't want to spread it. And I find it interesting that they're able to deal with this much better than we are because they realize that it may help. And if it doesn't help, what's it hurting? And that's what I don't right. understand that's going on here. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm completely in agreement with you. I think it's a very, it's a very odd thing. I think there are so many different factors at the moment with the, the way the country is divided politically, how it's impossible to have these things not become politicized just in the, with the tensions that exist. Um, even though I, I think it should just be a simple scientific, you know, evidence-based rule. Right, but right. That's just me. <laughs> um, I don't know. I also don't know if we're always very community-minded in this in, in this country. I think we're, we're. I think all humans tend to be tribalistic. I think we all, you know, like to find how we fit in, and sometimes we forget that actually we're just all the same. And so we start to self-segregate and then follow our own sets of rules rather than thinking of people as a whole. We, we tend to other, other people, if that was a sentence. The other thing I think also, and I'm going to ask you this, and if you don't want to answer me, that's fine. But I also think it has to do with age. And how old are you? I'm, uh, I'm 32 next week. Congratulations and happy birthday. Um, Thank you. I feel that people that are in your age bracket are more willing to cooperate because they are more community-minded than people of my age, which I am in my mid-50s. And I find that very interesting because your generation or your age group, again, is much community-minded than people that have been here or have are much older than you are. Now, the other question I have, and I don't know if I asked you this the last time we talked, you've been in the States for 13 years. Are you a natural, yeah. naturalized citizen or are you a, uh, on a, on a work visa? I'm on a work visa okay. at the moment. I'm applying, my green card is just being processed, my application. Okay. So are you looking at becoming a citizen or are you just, just wanting to work here? No, I would want to become, I mean, I'm looking now to, to have my permanent residency if my green card is approved. Okay. Um, I, you know, my whole life has been established here. I've been here since I was 19. So for me, you know, it, it's, it's quite a weird place to exist, uh, being in between. So, for example, you know, it's funny that this country, you know, the, this country is founded on the idea of, uh, no taxation without representation, and right. yet that has been my entire existence. <laughs> yeah, I find that very interesting you know? myself. Um, I don't understand why that if you're a green card holder, you're here legally, you're paying taxes, why you don't have a, a right to vote in some way, shape, or form. Because, again, like you what? said, it's representation. Uh, or taxation right. without representation, it's like the whole the whole area of Washington D.C. They pay taxes, but they can't vote for a federal office, which makes no sense whatsever. So, yeah, ag- I mean, 
and, and, and talking to you now as the Republican convention starts this evening, um, you've been here for 19 or for 13 years to you watching these types of convention must be like watching a circus. Well, it's, it's, uh, it, it's always a confusing system. However long I've been here, it still it, it works in a very different way than, than makes like than I was brought up with. So right. Some of it is, is kind of baffling. Um, and it's, it's honestly, it, it, I mean, it's frustrating to be on the outside and not knowing, because when you, you know, going through, and I've always been here on visas, I've never been, you know, but, you know, I've always been through the system, but, it, but there are, there are things that exist outside of those things that make you feel like you don't quite belong. There are things you don't know whether you can say. There are jobs I, at certain points I wasn't allowed to have, and so I didn't do them. You know, there are there are a lot of restrictions. There's the idea of you know the threat of in my mind, and there are people like you know with much much more serious immigration problems than this, and this is tales in comparison. Right. But there's it gives you a certain feeling to know that if I was if I was jaywalking and I got a ticket, I could theoretically be deported for that. Seriously. I mean, theoretically, right? Well, I'm not allowed to commit any crime. Okay. And nor do I want to. But it's an interesting, and and I really would like to reemphasize that there are so many worse immigration things happening, and I'm incredibly lucky. But it's just in terms of feeling outside of something where you've established yourself. It's very odd. Um, and things like in a pandemic, like not being allowed to get unemployment. Oh, see, I didn't, like I didn't realize that. Yeah. Because um, I would have, and, and again, this is an assumption on my part, is I would have assumed because you're paying into the system, you'd be able to withdraw from the system. But because you're not a citizen... And you're on a visa. Well, I'm not a permanent resident. Oh, you're not, not a per- permanent resident. Okay, you're not a permanent resident. I find that very hard to believe. Yeah. I mean, you have an, a physical address in New York. Why would you yeah, not? Yeah, and I think there are lots of there are lots of complicated reasons why. I think to do with green card requirements and needing to prove that you can. You know, there are rules that exist before the pandemic hit right. that didn't change. So I assume that that people don't want to, you know, they don't want people coming in and becoming permanent residents if they can't prove that they can support themselves. Uh-huh. But that rule doesn't necessarily apply when there's a global pandemic with an entire, you know, with industries being knocked out. You know, it, it, there are complicated nuances that and I and I find it odd that they won't and the the process wouldn't be easier for you because you have a work history for the last thirteen years here. Because to me, I would look at you going, okay, she's worked for thirteen years. This is what she's done. She hasn't broken the law. Let's fast track her and get her in here because now she'll be a a a valid and reliable taxpayer, and we need her money. Because I think that's the motivating factor for any of them is because we want the tax dollars coming in whenever you become a resident. But I pay them either way. But I pay them either way. That's true too. Now, okay. Now, my question is: Are you allowed to own a home if you're on a visa? I believe so. Okay. That would that would be something I'd have to double check. But I wonder if it would be worth the risk to buy a home, and then for some reason you denied application for renewal. And being sent back. I mean, there's just so so much out there that I don't think the average American understands when it comes to these situations. Because when we think of immigration or we think of visas, we don't think of people like you. We think of everybody coming in from the south border. And that's the face that we see. And I think that's why people are so misinformed about how the whole system works right and i mean i don't know exactly how the system works in the uk either so i think it, it's one of those things that if you don't go through it you don't know about it but i also think that the way uh people coming in from the southern border are represented is often, is yes. often you know a complete misrepresentation and and takes away from people's humanity and, and the reality of, of why people are doing that and what it takes for someone. You know, I'm the, I'm the daughter of a refugee. 
you know? My mother escaped the Hungarian Revolution in 56 and moved to the UK um, with her whole family. She was six years old, came with her parents and her brother. Yes. And, and people don't flee a country, especially with their children, unless there's something to flee. No one really tries to, to do that without, without it, there being a need. It's the same with people in Europe getting on tiny boats and crossing the channel. Yes. Or any other body of water. So I think, I think um, a lot of it is to do with presentation and a, and a lack of humanity. And again, this tribalism that exists. It's like, oh, well, we're different from these people. Not, I don't really think we are. I think if we were put in those situations, we might behave the exact same way. It's very interesting hearing it from your perspective. Um, and I'm so glad I asked you the question because I never thought the answers that you were giving me is what I would have heard. Because I, I agree with you that it has to do with the way it is being presented, the way it's being presented in the news media, the way it's being manipulated, because what they're trying to do is they're trying to stir an emotion. So you pick a side. And that's the way it's being right. done. Now, I can imagine with your family in the um, in the UK talking about leaving leaving the European Union, and I'm sure that was that was orchestrated in a way that all they kept seeing was this is why we need to do it, this is why we need to do it, and then now realizing that may not have been the best thing we could have done. The same way we're right. realizing I mean, I what we're realizing here. I mean, that also caused a great divide. Um, and London actually voted overwhelmingly to stay in the, in okay. the European Union. Well, that's where my family is. And, and I voted to stay in the EU, as did um, the majority, if not all, of my family. Okay. I, I'm sure there are certain people have different um, opinions. But, I, you know, my, my father's French. My mother was Hungarian. I, again, think people are better united than divided, just in general, which doesn't mean everyone has to have the same opinion. I just think unity is a, it can only be a positive thing. Um, and I think that the way, and I wasn't there for the campaign, but I think the way it was presented in the UK, in the UK was massively misleading. Right. Um, and I think people were uninformed and intentionally were given minimal information. Uh, you know, I had heard that there was a, a huge, like, rise. I think, I mean, this could be hearsay. So maybe this is not a verified source, but I so I was told at one point that the most Googled term the day after, or the most Googled phrase the day after Brexit, the Brexit happened was, what is the EU? <laughs> maybe I'm totally misinformed. I hope I am. I, I, I hope do, that was just some... I do too, you know. because if that's the case, I'm thinking, how could you vote about for something if you don't know what it is? Because you're told, because you're told that if we do this, these are the benefits you'll get, and okay. people, you know, people get told things they want to hear. Oh well, then, then these jobs that will never exist because these, because these industries no longer exist, they'll uh -huh. be given back to you, or gotcha. or these jobs, you know, that you don't, you know, we'll take these jobs away from these people coming in, but no one wanted these jobs. You know, it, it's a. It's, again, it's all about how it's presented. Are you noticing parallels with what's going on in, in, in London, with what's happening in the United States? In terms of the in terms of Brexit and, and the yes. election? Yeah. I think uh, I think there's a, a, a big swing towards I think I've noticed in multiple countries from what I've what I've seen and obviously I mostly consume actually like I, well I consume news mostly from the BBC but a lot of what I see otherwise is, is US news. Okay. Um, I think that generally in many countries there's a there's a swing towards uh, a more extreme right. And I think then you see a, a reaction to that that is far left. I happen to sit on the far left end of the scale in terms of my opinions of things and my the things I stand for but um, I think it's reactionary. I think it's fear. I think people are basing a lot of things on fear and the idea that things are being taken away from them. And, and that's what's causing people to react the way they are. Okay. 
which is very interesting. Anna, we got to step away for a brief moment, and then we'll come back to more conversation, okay? Sounds good. Online with Bill Alexander. On the phone line, we have Anna Frankel Duval, and she's in uh, New York right now as we speak to her, but we'll be back in just a moment here online with yours truly, Bill Alexander. Online with Bill Alexander is on WMCK.FM McKeesport, Mixtape Radio International at MTRI.co.uk, 991RadioRehoboth.com, Awakens.eu, SteelFM.org, and 107.5 FM, WLDJ, Newcastle. I just realized I got to get a voiceover person to do the Parkway 106 in Pittsburgh. <laughs> and I talked that, or I talk, yeah, I talk net.com. I only remember my own website. We don't use it that much anymore because of all the radio stations. But uh, uh, on the phone line right now, we have uh, Anna Frankel Duval, and we're talking about what's going on in the world of, I guess, politics, if you want to, from uh, the London to the United States. Now, another question, you just said this to me, and I think it's very interesting, because if we use the terms left and right, you lean that far to the left. Are you worried about that jeopardizing your visa or your or your future citizenship? I mean, yeah, honestly, talking about talking about immigration stuff, I was just thinking about how nervous it makes me. Okay, I'm um, sorry. No, that's not on you. That's, you know, that's, it, it, it does make me nervous, and, and theoretically, politics shouldn't. I mean, if we live in a democratic society, I should be allowed to have whichever opinions I want. Correct. Still, my, you know, my... My green card is based on merit, my application. It's based on these are the jobs I've done, these are the letters of recommendations I have, these are the, this is the amount of money I've earned from each of these different jobs. You know, it, it, it's a merit-based green card, so it shouldn't really... So it's probably a baseless anxiety that I have, but it is something that has, has, I have been worried about. Um, yeah, and so I limit... I don't... I was going to say I limit what I post you know, in my social media. But uh-huh. I'm, I'm quite openly uh, left-leaning. Because I notice with some of the acting roles that you've done, you can tell that to a point. Oh, really? Which one? Um, the Resistance? And that, I, that would make sense. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, The Resistance was written... Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> the Resistance was written as a, as a reaction by, uh, by Lenore Marx and was written uh, as a reaction to the 2016 election. Okay. And I, and I do play someone who, yeah, it, it's not a secret, I think. You've, you've caught me there. <laughs> and, and again, you also, and, and if I'm correct in what I've read, you actually, you consider yourself a feminist, correct? Absolutely. Okay. So, but that's what I'm saying. I would be concerned if it would... I, I, I don't know if I would be concerned. I Maybe I'm just jumping to conclusions here. But because of the the political climate in the United States, I can understand you being hesitant to share more information than you probably would normally if you weren't in the line of work that you were doing, if you weren't trying to create a persona for yourself in online and in media. I get that. You're you're in a situation where you have to do that, so people that you work with have an idea of who you are and what you can do. Right, and and also, you know, I'm as a per, as a just as a human, kind of a little bit completely obsessed with the truth and obsessed with um, people being themselves and speaking up for things. And I I believe very strongly that if you don't speak up for what you believe, you're complicit in the things that you don't speak up against, even okay. if you disagree. Which makes a lot of sense. So, yeah. So I've, it gets, gets me in trouble sometimes, particularly in bars when I overhear <laughs> things that are not in... And I've definitely got into some arguments. No physical fights ever. But I'm, I'm not very good at keeping quiet if I hear someone say something that I just think needs to be addressed. Um, you know, and... and Obviously, trying to do it respectfully and and a way that's conducive to discussion rather than, you know, outright, you know, fighting with someone. But 
there are some topics that I, you know, you have to decide what you stand for and who you are. And I, and I don't like living in fear. Okay. And so as long as I'm doing everything, as long as I'm not breaking the law, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not doing anything insane. I'm just speaking my opinions and my right. values and standing up for what I believe in. I don't think it should legally be able to be held against me. I am now officially disappointed that you are not doing a podcast. <laughs> I, I'm, I still might. I, there are some loose work, loose, loose ideas in the work. Because... <laughs> I was, whenever you reached out to me last spring, after everything happened, after you told me you bought all this equipment, I'm going, that's going to be a really cool perspective to hearing it from someone like you. And now listening to you talk even more, I think that's where you need to go. I said, because you, you have a way of presenting things that is non-threatening, but I can see if someone strikes your ire or just gets under your skin that that you would ha- let them have it in a way that would be um, civil. So I guess it would be civil discourse, which would be kind of interesting to hear. And plus, how can you get mad at anybody with a British accent? Oh, people can. <laughs> people can. <laughs> I wish they couldn't. It definitely still helps. Oh, I still can, like... I'm sure it does. You know, use bathrooms where I'm not meant to be able to use bathrooms or, like, charm my way somewhere. <laughs> but I think at a certain point, that charm dissipate and uh yeah so talking about the accent because i know you can do an american you can do an american vocal dialect do people do people think you're putting you're faking the british dialect the the accent um not often i i used to work as an actor at a harry potter exhibition okay and and I had people accuse me of faking my accent then because everyone there, everyone else there was faking their accent. But I had people come up to me and, and assume I was faking it. And, and the thing I find very interesting about accents is, is it's all based on, on perception and what your initial um, impression of someone is. Uh-huh. So I've had experiences where First of all, it happened, what happens to me most often is people don't expect the British accent to come out of my mouth and they'll just, you'll see them kind of stare. I'll see them stare at me for the first five, ten <laughs> seconds of a sentence that okay. I'm saying until their ears have adjusted because they just weren't expecting it. And, I, and that happens to people with accents across the world and it's quite funny when it happens. And I like to call it out because it's hilarious to me and not at all offensive and how would they know? Right. Um, but I've also had it that I uh, I was once in a in a twenty four hour play festival where we were at, you know a bunch of people, writers and actors met uh, in a theatre back when those existed, <laughs> and um, and we were divided into different groups and and it was me and another actor, um, Helene Gaelic, who's actually still a friend of mine and a playwright and. They said, okay, the player said, okay, so hmm, what are your skills? And I said, oh, I can do an American accent or, you know, we kind of chatted. And then this person, this player had 24 hours to write this a play. Okay. And then we performed it. And in those, and, and I had a part that was, I had to be a, an American at the beginning. And then I was like an undercover British spy or, or something along those lines. And we had the first read through with, the other actors and an actor came up to me afterwards and said oh i liked your work but um you do need to put in some more work on your british accent <laughs> and it was it's just all about perception yeah and he was pretty embarrassed when i told him that i'd grown up there for the first 19 years of my life <laughs> you know it's, it's interesting what we expect yeah so whenever you meet people and i don't know how often you do it but if you hear an accent, especially one from any part of the United States, in that first five or ten seconds, do you get a preconceived notion of what that person is or how they act just by what they say? I think that's an interesting question, but really complicated. because There are so many other things we pick up on at the same time. So any judge, I don't know how I would, how I'd be able to separate that judgment okay. from 
what they're wearing, what their facial expressions are, the context in which I meet them. You know, there are too many factors for me to to be able to, to kind of split hairs on what it was that made me think something about someone. Because the reason I ask that, because I'm sitting here listening to you, and, and most of the people that I talk to, I talk to via telephone. So I never see you. I read bio information. I know all this. And then I hear you. Then I get a perception out of it. And I just wonder if other people do the same thing that I do. And to me, and I, and, and I know this, whenever you're in, whenever you're at home in London, you don't feel that you have an accent. I am from the Midwestern part of the United States. I, in my opinion, I don't have an accent. But I know there's one there, but yet I can't pinpoint it. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, you're in such a specific position to be able to just have that one factor to focus on to identify people. Yeah. Um, but also, I mean, there's no one who doesn't have an accent. It's just how familiar we are with them. Mm-hmm. Like, no one in the world doesn't have an accent. There are so many different factors that go into it. And also, what would be the, the point of origin for any language? I mean, it's just, there are something like 160 dialects in the UK. I, I don't know how everyone has one. It's just whether, we know, whether we're familiar with them or not, or what associations we have with them or not. And that's something I find in terms of voiceover work. The, the work I've tended to do, and it will be multiple factors, the depth of my voice, different qualities it has. But I do medical work. I do tech work. I do luxury brands. Uh-huh. If I'm doing an animation, I'm usually evil. It's, you know, very specific. If you think about movies and animation, the bad guy is often, often different. <laughs> yeah, you're right. I didn't think about that. Um, okay, yeah. so my other question is, you said there's how many different accents in, in, in the UK or in London? I think it's, 100, it's 160, I think, in the UK. Okay. I, I could be wrong, but I so think somewhere there. So you're working with an, a director, and you come in with a British accent, and he goes, no, that's not what I want. Are you able to modify it to the one that he does want? Because well, but what I'm saying is, are you able to do other British dialects or accents? I am, I am. Some of them I'll be more familiar with because I mean it's all just sound changes. Okay, it's different placements. It's different. It's using the same tools differently. So some of them I'll be able to to do kind of off the top of my head, and some will take a lot of work and time and study it because there are some difficult accents in the UK. At least I find them difficult. So what do you consider, what is your accent considered as when you talk to people? What type of British accent is it? It's, it's like a, um, probably like a middle-class London accent. I mean, London has a bunch of different accents as well, you know? So there are some people who are much, much better spoken, like not even better spoken, but much posher than I am. Okay. And there are people who are less posh than I am. There are people who... You know, London is, is also really diverse in terms of, of cultures, of nationality, of, you know, all these different factors that there are accents from London that are not from the part of London I'm from that feel like home to me, even though I'm not part of those cultures. Gotcha. Just based on, you know, there it, it, I, I, you know, I, I couldn't even just say it was a London accent because... Because I mean, what we refer to as a Cockney accent comes from a very, very, very small area of London. And that's what I was just going to ask you about the Cockney accent, because we're familiar with that here, because I think that is what is the standard stereotype accent from that part of the world, because that's what we're most familiar with. And we have a term to it. Now, where I'm at, which I'm located in western Pennsylvania, we have an accent. Ours we consider as Pittsburghese. And it's a very unique <laughs> way of speaking because, and I had a teacher in college that broke me of it, which part of me is upset that she did, but it's the terminology. It may not be the the accent itself, but it's the terms that we use. For example, we don't, when we're talking to a group of people, we don't say you, we say yuns 
because it's a lazy way of speaking. Also, if we're going to a store or something, the name of the store, we usually add an S to it at the end, even though it may not be there. So it's very different and very unique. If I'm talking about washing the car, we don't say wash, we say wash. It's just the what? different... I don't know any of this. Don't... Well, you need to come here. We'll teach you this accent. I will. Um, and, oh, but it please. is... It's a very unique... It, seriously, it is a very unique accent or dialect in Western Pennsylvania. Um, it's becoming a little bit more prominent in the media, but for the most part... Um, if you get someone that really talks it well, you can't understand the word they're saying. Because when they say the term downtown, down, I just, just did it there. Instead of saying downtown, they say downtown. Because we're lazy when we talk. We, we slur everything together. Oh my goodness. I would be so excited to hear all of that. I'll, I love that. I'll send you examples. I'll do that because there's a lot out there. Oh, please. Um, because I think you'd be very interested in that because it's a different, it's a different regional dialect that a lot of people, um, can't really pinpoint because the way the, the way that this area was formed, we had people coming from Poland, from the UK, from Italy, from all that. And they, and, and from the Slovak countries coming in and combining their language to create a new one. Yes. English is the main variable, but we picked up different terms from different um, ethnic backgrounds. Fascinating. I just love that stuff. And, um, and that, again, goes back to the point of us all being, this, all it, being just human. But that's what's really interesting is that at a period of time, we were more accepting than we are now. I mean, I, I, I think so, but also, I mean... There are, again, so many different factors. It depends from which point of view you're looking at. Oh, I know that. I know that. Um, Trust me. (laughs) I know that that all too well because of of the situations that we've dealt with. And growing up in the United States in the late 60s and my formative years through the 70s and 80s, um, we weren't focused on that. Even though it was going on, we did not see it played out in the media the way we're seeing it played out today. Right. Um, I think that's something that... um, Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Finish what you were saying. I was just going to say, what a lot of people, I think, uh, uh, with the time that all of us have had, or a lot of us have had during this pandemic, I think a lot of people are um, shocked to learn how much they didn't know about the various experiences of living in in this country. Yes. Um, And even the people who thought they did know still have a lot more to learn myself included you know like there's there's an endless amount of of stuff i have certainly taken for granted being a you know white straight cisgendered woman living in brooklyn that is not accurate with how so many people have to live Mm -hmm. and what people have to go through in their in their lives every day just to survive and live you know what I also think is very interesting is how the cell phone has changed the way we look at the world. Because yeah. when I was um, when I was your age, which was so long ago, um, cell phones were oh, just oh yeah, it is it. It's twenty. <laughs> it was twenty one years ago. I mean, that's a long time. But that was before cell phone. Uh, heck, I, yeah, you weren't even born yet when I was your age. Um, now I feel old. Thank you very much, Anne. I really appreciate that. No, I was, uh, trying, to, I was trying to do the opposite. <laughs> you did that to yourself. I did that. No, that don't that. take responsibility. I did it myself. But we had when we had cell phones, we had flip phones. We didn't have what we have right now, a smartphone. So we were not able to do what we're doing now. And you can see how with even in the last... 10 years how the phone has now dictated the way we see things we don't see anything landscape everything is profile and everything is in short clips and we don't know how to deal with that because we don't know how to deal about putting it in perspective or showing the whole story like example of the 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 situations have been happening with the the police shootings and stuff like that 
we only see small snippets of it because that's what the person recorded on their phone. So what we end up doing is we're creating a narrative just over that one brief moment in time. I think that's interesting, but also I think, first of all, I think our attention spans are shorter. Some I, of these videos are, are not that short. Yeah, I agree. George Floyd's video was not short. No, I didn't. I didn't watch it. You know, but like, I, it, that's not a short video. That and that there are there are photos and videos from many different angles mm -hmm. of that same scene. So of that same moment. So I don't. I think it's. It, it, to look at it that way could be reductive in terms of how much it has added to seeing things okay. that we wouldn't normally see and people being held accountable for things that go on. That doesn't mean that, that people don't have their own perspective when they shoot things, when they film things, but that's true of everything, any type of media we've ever consumed. There is nothing interesting or informative that doesn't have a point of view. Correct. Even documentaries have a point of view. Yes. Um, so I think, yeah. Yeah. No, I no, I, I understand. I understand where you're coming from, and I agree with that uh, because we are looking at it differently than we were before. Um, Twenty years ago, thirty years ago, when the video camera was introduced to the home market, you never saw anybody walking around with one. Now everybody has a phone in their pocket, and they can pull it out and they can they can put it online immediately which we never yeah. thought that was going to be a possibility. When I got into this field of radio and television 30-plus um, years ago, um, we said that for us to be able to get work, we had to be in a studio to do it, or we had to have a camera crew to be with us so we can show it on a network or a local TV station. Now, yeah. you can just stream it online. The way I produce the show right now, that it's on multiple radio stations throughout the United States and the world, I don't have to leave my studio at home, which is to me amazing. And it and yeah. it and, it, and I mean, the audience needs to understand that it sounds the way it would if I was in the station studio, which again is amazing. Absolutely, and it's fascinating to me. I'm the only person in my family who's not a journalist. Oh, that's so right. You I did grew tell up me that. Watching my mom was a radio producer and radio journalist watching her edit real to real. Oh, the good old days. House. Good old days. My whole house was covered in tape and, and razor blades. Raz yeah. Honestly. <laughs> <laughs> I used to sit there and splice things together. I still I have a cutting block. Over and over. I still have a cutting block oh. here somewhere. Come to think of it. Um, trying to, I'm trying to find a real to real just to have some memory space in my house. Oh, really? Because I think it, yeah, I think they're amazing. And a, a really nostalgic thing for me, even though I never edited on them because I was, you know, 10. I have, but, I have, I have one not far from me, but it's mine and you can't have it. Uh, <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> uh, my wife also has a background in radio and she actually used to produce a radio program for a, um, for a organization that did religious broadcasting throughout uh, the eastern part of the United States. So I have that real left in my system. So, but uh, it, it is, it's, 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 a, it's technology that we never thought we'd see move as quick and as fast because now if your mother would edit, everything's done on a computer. She did have to learn that. She was not happy. About I, oh, I can imagine. She did have to learn it. Lucky for me, whenever the transition came in from reel-to-reel -reel tape to um, computer editing, I was still young enough that I was able to jump on the computer editing and realize how much more efficient it was to edit. It just took yeah. a little bit longer because when you're on reel tape, you were editing in real time and removing stuff. To edit on computers, you had to load it then edit it, and then unload it. So it took oh, longer to do that. So, yeah, it, 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 it's, yeah. It's, it's a different learning curve. It, it's definitely interesting since I got my home voiceover set up. And my, what I'm very proud of is my booth, which is a closet, but it's a closet entirely dedicated to my recording. And as I've learned how to edit mint, like my auditions and, uh -huh. and small things, um. And, I, and it, it is intuitive in some ways. And I think because I grew up learning how to use computers. I mean, I did have a flip phone. I want to be very clear that I did have one of those. <laughs> but a lot of my time has been spent on screen. Yes. And, and so 
it doesn't I'm I'm not a master editor by any stretch. I can't do anything fancy, but it doesn't take me too long to figure out, okay, I do this, this and this, this is this this button and I can put together a pretty nice sounding breathless audition uh-huh. and send it off within ten, fifteen minutes of recording it and that's amazing. And a new skill that I picked up in the pandemic. But I think technology has been has evolved in a way that's made it easier for them the masses. Not all of, all of us are professionals like you. Uh, that's very nice of you to say. Um, a lot of people, and I've realized this and just listening to you talk, when you do your stuff for voiceovers now, you are producing it at home and then you're sending it to them as an uh, audio file? Depends on the job. Sometimes you're patched in on uh Okay, that's the other thing I was going to ask. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And how's so this? So I had a national commercial this year that was, that was done patched in while I was under a of cushions <laughs> on my little mic. And, I find that interesting. And it was on CNN, it was on Bloomberg, it was, it was, you know, it was pretty cool that that... What was the commercial was for? Like, it was for Palo Alto Cybersecurity Network. Okay. So it was talking about how how Palo Alto is useful during the pandemic and, and how they scaled up and who they'd helped. Very interesting, but um, I I learned yeah the, the pillows, cushions, blankets, whatever it works really well if you don't have a studio. Um, also, really well, what it doesn't work well is when you have to slide out in the middle of a session and you know that everyone on the other end can just hear you clunking through. <laughs> like you have to go fill your water bottle up. You sound like an elephant leaving this fort that you're trying to keep kind of built. Yeah. Well, someone told inelegant. someone told me that the the one of the best places to do it is actually in a car, because you can close yes, the doors. I heard that, and I was really shocked to hear that. Anna, it has been a pleasure as always. I am so glad when you're able to join me on the show, and uh, we need to do this more often because just I when we start, that. I have so many more questions to ask you now about your voiceover <laughs> work and what your plans are and everything else. And I am going to convince you one of these days to actually create your own podcast. I, I um I have a I have a, a podcast in mind with a friend. We have a call on Wednesday. As soon as it happens, I will let you know. I promise. Please do, because I, I, I think that uh, your perspective is so unique. And I think a lot of people, especially in the United States, needs to hear it. So I appreciate you taking time and talking to me. And again, we'll talk to you next time. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you very much, Anna. Anna Frankel Duval here online with Bill Alexander. Always a pleasure. Um, a friend, I like to call a friend of the program. I hope she feels the same way too. But again, very enjoyable to be able to talk to her. And also a reminder coming up next week, fingers are crossed, we're working on times right now. But Melanie, the woman who sang Brand New Key and also um, Candles. Uh, uh, lay down, lay down, and Ma. I, they look what they did to my song and all this other great music from the early seventies. Will be on the program next week, so those of you that are listening to us can look forward to that. And I have a cybersecurity expert coming on at the end of the month, and I will give you the exact information on that on next week's show. But that will be happening, I believe, it's September. 5th? No, September 7th. It's on Labor Day. So just to give you a heads up on that one. Anyway, that's going to wrap it up for yours truly, Bill Alexander. Everybody, you have a great week. We'll talk to you next week here online with yours truly, Bill Alexander. This has been a Million Dollar Baby production. For more information, go to italknet.com.
How did we become Central Ohio's most trusted team of orthopedic experts? We focus on what matters most, our patients. At Orthopedic One, we know we're only at our best when we're helping you get better. And every day, your commitment to overcoming pain and injury inspires and moves us. That's why we bring our best every day to earn your trust. Find a physician near you at orthopedicone.com. If you've been a renter, you know it's stressful to find the perfect place. But Zillow Rentals make it easy. They have filters for pretty much everything. So you can find a rental that's big enough for entertaining your friends, but small enough they won't crash all weekend. Find your sweet spot on ZillowRentals.com. Your favorite band's about to play a sold-out show. You got in. Over here. With a friend. And found a spot close enough to see the set list. They're definitely playing your song. When you're with Amex, it's not if it's going to happen, but when. American Express. Don't live life without it. If you're into designer furniture and you want the sofa that broke the internet, you don't have to go broke to get it. Because Designer Looks Furniture has all the same styles and trends and all the quality, but without the designer prices. Check them out. Designer Looks at Value City Furniture or designerlooks.com.